This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today is Gibbs Knotts, who is a political science professor at the College of Charleston. And with us from Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville is Chris Cooper from Western Carolina University, who is also a political science professor. These folks have written a new book, The Resilience of Southern Identity, Why the South Still Matters in the Minds of Its People. First of all, gentlemen, welcome to the journal. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. What was the genesis of this book? Chris, I'll let you come on first mm-hmm. since you're, you're not here in the studio. You know, so Gibbs and I worked together for um, a little over a decade at Western Carolina University, and um, we both kind of have an interest in the South and in Southern politics, really. And, and over time, we wrote a bunch of academic journal articles that we found interesting and we hoped that our colleagues would find interesting, but frankly, probably didn't see the light of day outside of, of academia. So we decided, you know, maybe we have a more sustained argument to make, and we really wanted to share it with certainly our colleagues in political science and in the social sciences, but more with, uh, you know, with, with people like our families. You know, Gibbs is, I'm from South Carolina. Gibbs has got family from, uh, from Georgia and South Carolina. And we thought, hey, we, we kind of want, we think this puzzle that we're trying to unravel is of interest for more folks than just, uh, than just kind of our academic brethren. Anything to add, Gibbs? Just that we, I think we both have a love-hate relationship with the South. I mean, I think we've gone through periods in our life where we've been very proud to be Southerners. We've probably gone through periods where we scratched our head and maybe tried to hold back on our Southern accents a little bit. And again, it's just such an interesting question of why people choose to identify with the South and how important they make that with their own self-identity. And so we wanted to explore that. And fortunately, there's been some great people like John Shelton Reed, in particular, uh, Larry Griffin and others. Uh, Derek Alderman's doing some great work at the University of Tennessee right now who are looking at questions of Southern identity today. And it was just, you know, people still connected with the region, even though it's a very, very different place than it once was. And so that we wanted to try to get to the bottom of that and try to make a contribution there. You both identify yourselves as political scientists, but your book's not political science as it's defined today. It's not sociology. You mentioned John Shelton Reed. It's not really history. You rely a lot on my friend Jim Cobb from the University of Georgia. It's it's truly interdisciplinary. It's a, it's a Southern Studies book. Later on in the book, you talk about how going outside the region makes a difference, an experience outside the region. And I started thinking, when was the first time I went outside the region? And it was after my freshman year in college. I was a counselor at a camp in the Delaware Water Gap in New Jersey. And when camp songs would be going on, somebody would start to sing Dixie. Well, Walter stands up. And they pegged me as a Southerner. And I'm I'm gathering from this book that both of you have had similar experiences. Certainly, yeah, absolutely. And I I remember sitting in John Shelton Reed's class at UNC in the early 1990s, and he talked about uh, being in college, leaving Tennessee, and being in college in the Northeast. And that's where he first became to think of himself uh, as a Southerner and, and talked more about, sort of became more aware of his Southern identity. And, you know, one of the things about this book is we had these focus groups. So in chapter four, we, we talked to people who identify as Southerners, both African-Americans and whites, and, and almost to a person they talked about similar to your experience working as a camp counselor. You know, they might have gone away to see relatives or they might have been in the military or gone away to college. And that's where they really became aware of how different some of their some of their uh, their culture and their and their mannerisms really were. Chris? Yeah. Yeah, and and sometimes that's mediated through uh, through television, through the radio, right? So we got a lot of stories from folks who said, "Hey, you know, I didn't think of myself as a Southerner too much until John Stewart started making fun of us too much, right? If you watch on the Daily Show, then Trevor Noah starts making fun of folks from Alabama. Perhaps you, you get a little more fired up about being from Alabama, and you feel like you're being attacked. So I, I think. The idea of, of feeling othered, right, whether it is by physically going to a camp like you're describing, or I remember going to work at the Census Bureau in Washington and having folks refer to me as their Southern friend. And I thought, well, I don't think I sounded that Southern or seemed that Southern, um, but they did. And so I think by them identifying me as a Southerner, I kind of took on that identity more. And I think the same thing is often true through the media. For both of you, but I'll start with Gibbs, this is a pretty meaty topic. How did you go about wrapping your hands around it? 
So we wanted to bring together a bunch of different disciplines in the work from, from people from history and sociology and Southern studies. But we also did uh, what we call a mixed methods approach. So we, we used a lot of survey data. We collected a lot of quantitative information. Again, we tried to make it accessible to a general audience. But we also talked to people and, and, and conducted these focus groups. And so we felt like both a mix of quantitative survey data and focus group, more qualitative data, would help us better get a handle on the question of Southern identity. I mean, different approaches can help you, help you address different aspects of Southern identity. That sounds pretty dry, Chris, but your book is not dry. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, and, and I'm going to make fun of Gibbs for sounding too dry later. But, uh, <laughs> look, I think we, we, we did, as Gibbs said, try to kind of, you know, the, the quantitative and the qualitative, just to sort of give you a sense of one of our odder methods to get around a Southern identity, uh, but we think ultimately uh, really important. We counted business names, right? So, so the notion that if you're driving down the road in Columbia or Greenville or Charleston or, or Chapin today, you may see uh, Southern Lumber, you may see Southern Drugstore, Southern Coffee Shop, that you're going to see those kind of names in the South, obviously, and you're not really going to see them uh, elsewhere. And we think that's kind of one measure of Southern identity. Um, it, at the same time, there's, there's, there are others, right? You may see in those same towns, Dixie Lumber, you may see Dixie Drugstore. And that has kind of a different connotation. And we took this idea again from this fellow, John Shelton Reed, who was at Chapel Hill. And he said, look, if you look at business names with Dixie, that's kind of a sign of the Old South. If you look at uh, business names with Southern, maybe that's a sign of, of kind of a newer South. And so what we found, kind of updating Reed's work, is that Dixie is, uh, is, is close to gone, right? You just don't see a lot of Dixie businesses anymore. It's not a smart marketing ploy. You're going to alienate a huge proportion of your uh, potential customer base. But at the same time, Southern stores are staying fairly constant or perhaps even increasing a little. So the message we took from that is that Southern identity is still here, but that the type of Southern identities change a little bit, right? So we sort of set it up there. We then do, as, as Gibbs said, and we can talk more about this, some surveys asking people all sorts of questions about the South and Southern identity. And then we did these focus groups with people where we really got to talk with them one-on-one -on -one about why and, and how they became Southerners. I've known John Reed, and I know, I know his work. And he actually, using his graduate students, went to phone books, all right, you all used modern technology, and as I understand it, it didn't have to be the Dixie restaurant. There was a, a gift shop in Mississippi, I think, Two Chicks. Two Chicks from Dixie. Two yes. Chicks from Dixie. So you were able to word search and perhaps come up with a, a bigger sample or a different sample? That's exactly right. We weren't limited by looking in the phone book, you know, the white pages to the, the Dixie section. And so it was, it was really nice. We used, we used whitepages.com on some of our work. We use RefUSA, which is available in most public libraries to search businesses. And what we were also able to do is find out some characteristics of these businesses, uh, something Reed couldn't do. Because of this modern technology, the Dixie businesses tended to be a little older. They tended to be more in hospitality and tourism type areas. It's very – we could find almost no examples of a Dixie doctor's office or a Dixie financial services. People didn't seem too keen on, you know, getting their – getting going to see a Dixie doctor or putting their money in a Dixie business. But there was a Dixie funeral home. There was a Dixie funeral home, exactly. Uh, but didn't you also find that besides being older businesses that they were generally single owner, they were not corporations? That's exactly right. And, and it wasn't a, a franchise kind of thing. That's right. But you start that chapter off – looking at Dixie State University, and I did a double take when I found out it's in Utah. <laughs> well, good. Well, we're, we're glad the, the kind of literary device worked there then. That's, that's, that's the reaction we wanted. Uh, so, yeah, Dixie State University is located in Utah. And this is weird. Sort of years ago when Gibbs and I were working on this stuff, we would find lots of mentions of Dixie in Utah. And we thought, what the heck is going on here? And we actually went down the hall to a historian friend of ours named Richard Starn. So we said, Richard, do you know what's going on? And Richard said, uh, well, it turns out there's this big part of Utah that's known as Utah's Dixie. 
And so we started looking uh, a little bit deeper, and, and some folks claim, hey, it's because there was a lot of cotton production here. Other people claim, no, it's because there were a lot of Confederate sympathizers. Well, this university took on the name Dixie State College. It had been Dixie State College for a long time. And then they decided, hey, maybe we want to change our name, right? Maybe we don't want to be known as Dixie State College. So they did what universities do. They paid some consultants a bunch of money. And the consultants came in and said, all right, let's, let's talk about a name change. And they ultimately decided to keep the Dixie, but drop the college and pick up the name University. So they paid however much money to decide they're now Dixie State University. We, we thought that was interesting at a number of levels. One, that they chose to stay that way, but also that, you know, in some ways, identity is, yes, it's 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 political and geographic boundaries, but it's also in people's minds. And it's in these kind of inherited histories that people have. So as I'm sitting here in Asheville and y'all are sitting there in Columbia, it seems odd that somebody from Utah would name their university Dixie. For the people at Dixie State, it really actually seemed like part of their heritage and it made an awful lot of sense to them. Wasn't there a yearbook called The Confederate? It was. It was, exactly. Did, did that get changed? I mean, clearly there's more than just picking yeah. Dixie out of the air. It is, right? And, and so this was essentially the, the battle that they were going through, as we understand it, at Dixie State University. Some, if, if the folks who wanted to change the name said, look, we had a yearbook named the Confederate. We had all sorts of Civil War uh, symbolism. This was not a good look for our university, and that really this region was called this because of this uh, history of, of slavery and racism. And then the other side said, no, 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 that's not it at all, right? It's really about this culture and this heritage and cotton production. And it really played out in a very similar way to the battles you see all over the South today about monuments and about building names, you know, Tillman Hall at Clemson or at Winthrop University and whether that should be changed or not. We're in a very different part of the country, two time zones away. The battles were remarkably similar. Well, in that chapter on naming and businesses, that's one thing you're looking at, you have a wonderful phrase about place names. Place names are, to borrow a phrase from sociologist Sam Gosling, a type of behavioral residue. And that immediately brought to mind several years ago, people in Minneapolis discovered that the largest lake in town was Lake Calhoun. Yeah. And they called me here. How did we get that? Well, Calhoun was Secretary of War, and some young Army officer mapping the territory named it Lake Calhoun. Right. Gosling was an inspiration to us. He's this University of Texas psychologist. And, and we can just, just the situation in Minnesota, you really can learn a lot about a place by looking at what names people use, looking what clues they leave behind. Gosling's work, he was looking at people's offices. And so if we walked into to your office at USC, we could probably say, you know, here's a little bit about this guy. You know, what pictures does he choose? What mementos does he have up? And so, you know, kind of the same way you can walk through Minnesota and look at what are the lakes named and what are the streets named. You learn a lot about the history and a lot about what's important. And we kind of like it too because we're, we're big fans of survey research, but you know, you got to get called, you got to get interrupted, you got to take time out of your day to answer a survey. It's kind of refreshing as a social scientist to, to be able to go out and look at clues that people leave behind, especially when you don't have to bother anybody. We don't have to bother anybody to count Dixie businesses and try to understand them. And so that was appealing to us. We'll, we're, we'll still bother some people in our future work, but it's kind of nice to be able to go out and just observe because there's a lot of clues out there to learn about history and to learn about what's important to people. Well, you use an example, gives very close to home. Uh, Mother Emanuel Church is located on Calhoun Street, and then everything else, the slave mart is nearby. But the mixing of, I guess in this case, it's behavioral residue. That's right. And, and, and I think that does, like you said, and you've got the Calhoun Monument in Marion Square that's, that's, that's currently being talked about by the city council in Charleston. I mean, I think, but that does paint, I think, a very accurate picture of the South and a very accurate picture of Charleston. I mean, it's a region that has had, you know, these, these racial conflicts and this, this mixing of, of so many generations and so many different uh, racial groups. And so, you know, to really understand that city, you know, I think you have to take into account all those different things. Well, in this chapter on, on business names, like John Reed, you use maps and you identify what is the South today. And when you use Dixie, there are half what you call Dixie Islands in the South. And a couple of them would be there's one in 
South Carolina, which kind of stretches, it looks like, from Lexington County up through Lawrence, right. the Black Belt of Alabama, and well as part of the Florida Panhandle, the Mississippi Delta, Mississippi Gulf Coast, New Orleans, a couple of little pockets in Texas. Right. But then when you change to Southern, you can take basically almost all of the states we call the Deep South and throw in Tennessee. That's right. You use the terms Deep South, and by that you mean which states? Sure. We mean uh, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, kind of where the Southern identity is the strongest, uh, these states that have, that have been maybe the most Southern of Southern states. Uh, and, and then the, the other term we use is the peripheral South. And, it, you know, we, we mostly go with the 11 states of the old Confederacy. Sometimes we'll see folks add Kentucky and Oklahoma. For our Southwide survey that we did in Chapter 3, we did add folks from those two states. But, you know, that's a great thing to talk about in class. And I still do that in my Southern politics class. And I know Chris does as well, is just to ask students, you know, do you consider what states do you consider to be part of the South? And it's a really interesting discussion and jumping off point about what Southern identity means and, and, and which states are, are, are and are not Southern. Well, a number of years ago, I was a member of an organization called the Southern Studies Forum, which is a group of transatlantic scholars. And this got to be a debate because a young European scholar had done some work on Oklahoma and several Europeans said, you know, Oklahoma can't possibly be a Southern state. And very quickly, people said, oh, but yes, it can, because Native Americans fought for the Confederacy. If you look at what where Southern Living is subscribed to, and being the historian, I said, well, you got to put Delaware. And he said, why Delaware? I said, Delaware was a slave state. Missouri was a slave state. Uh, now, interestingly, in your surveying, there's not much Southern identity in Missouri today. That's right. Delaware is included by the Census Bureau in the South, right? It is. Delaware, West Virginia, and Maryland are all, are all part of the Census South, 16-state uh, region Census South. But you know, most folks would not put those at the top of their list of most Southern states. So when you do your work, you're dealing with what you defined as the Deep South and the Peripheral South, occasionally including Oklahoma and Kentucky, mm-hmm. but not Missouri, not Delaware. You do include Texas and Florida. That's correct. Uh, That's correct. Yeah, and Florida is so interesting because, you know, the line on Florida is it gets less southern the further south you go. And Texas kind of a similar thing. East Texas, I know where Merle and Earl Black, the two political scientists that Chris and I look up to quite a bit, uh, are from East Texas. And, you know, they write about the southern identity there. But, you know, very different feel in the western part of Texas. One interesting observation on business names, you took Winn-Dixie grocery stores out of your sample because they're based in Florida. And had you used them, Florida would have been the most southern state in the south. That's right, yeah. Winn-Dixie, if if you want sort of the exception to the rule, Winn-Dixie is it probably on a number of levels. But yeah, it's a it, it was a discuss- it was actually we had a, a long discussion about that and, and whether to exclude Winn-Dixie and what that means, but it just so dominates there's just not that many Dixie businesses anymore. When you include Winn-Dixie, it, it, it overrides everything. And John Shelton Reed made some similar decisions uh, with Winn-Dixie in the past, and it is a Florida-based chain. Let's back up a minute and go to what you call the roots of Southern identity. Kibbs, you might want to define that, and then Chris, you chime in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we wanted to, to set the book up a little bit and talk about you know talk about the the people who have come before us and and, and some of the work that's out there on this topic. I mean it's it's, it's been a big topic, but we chose to focus on uh, politics and food in that chapter as well, just to make the argument that despite all this homogenization, despite all the chain restaurants and and su- suburbs that you have in Charlotte and Atlanta, there still is some unique aspect of the South and Southern identity. We looked at the food preference which anyone who studies the South, who have been to the South, knows that uh, the Southern food scene is is extremely different and extremely popular and prolific right now. And also uh, Southern politics. Southern politics is something that's near and dear to our heart as political scientists. And there's a brand of politics in the South that, that makes the region unique. And so we felt like we needed to make the case that this is a, it still is a unique region. It's just different than what it was in the 50s or the 60s. Chris, how is it Mm -hmm. different from the South of the 50s and 60s? Well, in in a a number of ways, right? And and so just sort of tack on to what Gibbs is talking about. I mean, 
the landscape in the South probably doesn't look that distinct. And so we, we try to make this point in the book, and I know we make it in our conversations a lot. So um, if you are in uh, uh, Biltmore Park, which is kind of an upscale little mall near Asheville, or you are in a similar upscale mall near Seattle, they may look the same. They, they may have an REI. They may have the same kinds of businesses. Um, but despite the fact that the landscape looks similar, people, there's something that still makes people connect to region, right? So people have been talking about this for a long time. People like Jim Cobb have written, you know, much larger books than ours about the kind of history of this discussion of Southern identity. And for a long time, people said, hey, the idea of the South is dead, right? Somebody wrote a a long time ago a paper called An Epitaph for Dixie, the idea that it's done, it's over, it's buried. Um, And so we wanted to say early on, uh, we don't agree with that view. We think that people do still connect to the South. The South is still distinct. It's part partly food, as Gibbs said, it's partly politics, it's partly culture, it's partly the way we relate to each other, it's partly that when you first meet somebody in the South, the first thing you want to do is draw a line to figure out how you know somebody in common. And some of that is the same. I think there's a lot that's different at the same time. One, the landscape does look more homogenous. And two, the the racial component of the South is different than it was, right? So in the 1970s, not surprisingly, If you ask folks on a survey, hey, do you identify as a Southerner? Whites are a lot more likely to identify as Southerners than African-Americans. Today, that's not true. Um, It's either uh, about the same or maybe even slightly higher percentage of African-Americans connect to the region. So we are by no means arguing that race relations are calm or, uh, you know, that we are at any sort of of, of kind of final um, positive end to, to, to the race problems of the South. But we do think that African-Americans have reclaimed Southern identity in ways that have fundamentally changed the region. Of course, one of the things that's happened since the 70s is the new Great Migration, which is the migration from outside the region of African-Americans to the South. And instead of the Great Migration of the 1920s and 30s being primarily poor African-Americans going to the Midwest and the the Northeast for jobs, these are middle-class professionals in many ways. Although older African-Americans, and I've run into these, and they sometimes take classes at the university, particularly women who have were children of the Great Migration, but they've come back here because they have family here, they have place. They're going to, to rural counties like Darlington and Williamsburg because they still got kinfolk there, and there's a family homestead of some sort. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. So this new great migration back to the South by African-Americans is, is something that really fascinates us and we talk some about in the book. And I think it's partly, it can be climate, it can be not being tired of the snowstorms, it can be uh, economic conditions that pull African-Americans back to the region. And, and I think a big, perhaps one of the biggest drivers is this connection to home, connection to place, connection to a culture that, again, has been you know part of the South for centuries. For, for centuries now and really draws African-Americans back to the region. Uh, and it's just a, it's just a fascinating uh, demographic shift that's really been occurring uh, for the last several decades. Well, let's dig into something that we all care about, and that's food. In the very first couple of paragraphs, grits comes up. You found that 45 percent of the people living in the South eat grits frequently or sometimes. But there are other southern touchstones, okra, chitlins, pork rinds, catfish, moon pies, fried tomatoes, and sweet potato pie, and boiled peanuts. Now, how did you come up with that particular list? Well, so we used some some surveys that had been done before. So we, we keep mentioning this guy, John Shelton Reed. This is the, the John Shelton Reed advertisement program today. And so John Shelton listen, Reed... Listen, when you, he was, you, you can advertise John Reed all, all you want to on this show. <laughs> He, he did a, a series of surveys um, out of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill called the Southern Focus Polls. And so fortunately for us, he asked all sorts of really politically relevant, interesting questions. And he also asked people questions about the food they eat. And he asked people questions about open casket funerals. He asked questions about whether people like fireworks or don't like fireworks. And so he had had a series of questions about food. And so what we did and kind of the point of this 
was one, it's interesting and it's a touchstone for people, but also it's a good example of where white or Caucasian and African-American Southerners have more in common than, say, whites from the South and whites from the non-South, right? So if you look at the uh, how, whether it's how much people like these foods or how often they eat them, one of the things that unites races in the South is food. And so it ends up kind of seeming like this kind of fun footnote, but it, we actually argue that it's it's actually very important to understanding Southern politics and Southern society today and why kind of a, a, a biracial or multiracial South is uh, is is actually prevalent in, in, in parts of our region. When you did the food choices, there are things mm-hmm. in common and you've got to, you've got to a table somewhere, and I'm with the kielbasa and all that. Y- yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. And, and so that's the other thing we do is that we we're able to take and figure out here's some foods that people tend to associate with the South, and again that it's drawing white and African American Southerners together. And then we have some foods that Southerners don't eat at all. So kielbasa is a great example. If I go to a Packers game this fall. I might eat some kielbasa. If I go to a Gamecocks game this fall, there's not a kielbasa to be found. And so we think that is is kind of a sign of regional identity. In your chart, when you get to things like okra, chitlins, catfish, the difference between northerners and southerners is incredible. The difference on other things, boiled peanuts, it's not quite as great. Sweet potato pie still. And the difference in between, for example, kielbasa and north and south, you've got nine for the south and 17 for the, the north, and they kind of reverse that for boiled peanuts. Gibbs and Chris, we need to pause for a moment let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with two political science professors, Gibbs Knotts from the College of Charleston and Chris Cooper from Western Carolina University, about the resilience of Southern identity. Gibbs, you've got another one of those charts, right. how you describe whether a place is, how deeply Southern they are. So yeah, so we did this original survey. We had about 1,500 people respond. We thought of it as an update to the Southern Focus poll that John Shelton Reed did throughout the 1990s. And we knew what state they were in, and we basically found out that folks in Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, and South Carolina Over 90% of people living in those states consider themselves to be Southerners, much less in Oklahoma, which was our state with the lowest percentage, 53%. And then we had some fun with it. So we thought, okay, those uh, Southern to the core places like Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana, those just most Southern of Southern types of places. Then then the second category was the pretty darn Southern places, and then the sort of Southern, and then the not Southern at all. And so we just wanted to have some fun with some of the language there uh, and and being able to describe what we've talked about, this, this, this idea that though the South is a unique place and there's a lot that brings the South together, it's not monolithic and there's variance across the South and how much people uh, connect with the region and don't connect with the region. So, yeah, so Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, South Carolina, and Arkansas are at the top. Uh, and then kind of this mid-tier of Louisiana, Georgia, North Carolina, and Texas. And then kind of the bottom third would be places like Kentucky, Virginia, Florida, and Oklahoma. And I think folks, you know, in in Northern Virginia is a good example. And Chris uh, grew up uh, and spent some time in high school, I know, in Northern Virginia. I mean, that's a very, very different place now. It's, you know, connected to the D.C. region. And there are elements of the South up there, but it it has a very mid-Atlantic feel. It's not the Shenandoah and it's not Southside Virginia. That's right. For sure. No, that's right. I'm going to repeat by state because I just lo- I love this. Yes. At the very top is Mississippi, southern to the core. That's a deep south state. What surprises me is Tennessee is next, and you say that Chris's home state is mm-hmm. pretty darn southern, and that's a peripheral southern state. It's not core. Then's Alabama, which is southern to the core. South Carolina comes in fourth as pretty darn southern. Arkansas, pretty darn southern. I think that might surprise some mm-hmm. folks. But then you have Louisiana as southern to the core, although the percent is less than South Carolina and Arkansas. 
That's right. So we've got a couple things going on here uh, in this table, and one is uh, is Gibbs uh, described very well. We just we just asked people on a survey, "Hey, do you consider yourself a Southerner or not?" We had a big old survey. We aggregate that up. We come up with some some percentages, um, and then the Southern to the core, pretty darn Southern part. We actually have a, a four part categorization that we had used in some previous work, right? Where we're actually able to take on all sorts of different metrics. And so we see these these kind of cut lines, and, and I agree with you, Arkansas is a really interesting one. And I will add that Gibbs and I both do these surveys in our classes, as he mentioned, and then we'll share them across the two universities. It's kind of fun. And Arkansas is the one that I think our students tend to have much lower. But I think it says something important that if you call folks in Arkansas and you ask them, they think of themselves as Southern. And I think that really illustrates how much of Southern identity is a personal decision, right? This is not a geographic mandate. You can live in Jackson, Mississippi and say, I'm not a Southerner. And it turns out the people who live in Arkansas, even if we may not think of them as very Southern, they sure do. And you declare that Texas is not Southern. Right. And my wife is from Texas, and so this has been a point of some contention in our household. <laughs> Where in Texas? Is she from East Texas? She's, she's from Denton, Texas, so kind of between Dallas and the Oklahoma line. Okay. Now, there is a dark side to being a Southern, and I think we need to talk about that, gentlemen. And Gibbs, you want to define what you mean by that? Sure. So, you know, we wanted to make sure this was not a book just celebrating some blind celebration of the South. But we do think it's important to say, look, you know, there have been times in history where a connection to the South uh, has really been used in negative ways. It's been used in most cases to have whites come together and discriminate against or uh, uphold the racial order. But, it, but it's not something that's just in the past. I mean, obviously, what happened in Charleston with Dylan Roof and, and uh, him appearing with the Confederate flag, we would argue is a, you know, a perverse connection to Southern identity, uh, certainly that still exists. And we just we felt like, though, this was a, a book that talked a lot about the South and, and how it has moved past some of the racial conflict. We felt like we wouldn't be doing our job as scholars to not recognize that Southern identity has been used in a lot of nefarious ways in the past and, and still being used negatively by some people even today. We cite in there, there's a, uh, an article that done by a bunch of social psychologists, and essentially they show people the Confederate flag, and then they see how they respond to African-American candidates, including but not limited to Barack Obama. And what they find is that flashing the flag, the Confederate flag, can actually decrease support for African-American candidates. In other words, it primes them, right? And so we, we use that as a way to say, hey, this, this dark side of Southern identity is not just in the past. It's used today, and it can be used today to political expediency. We can look at the aftermath of Charlottesville, which, by the way, happened after your book was published. That's, that, that's right. And I think the, there are you know, everyday examples of this. And, and I think that's one of our big takeaways, right? We're, we, we both identify Southerners. We'll go ahead and put our cards on the table. We're not saying that's necessarily a, a good thing or a bad thing, right? We're not, we're not bragging about that. We're also not uh, ashamed of that. It is used by different people in different ways. Southern identity is changing over time, and it also may be different across people. The differences, but the, the commonalities that you come across in, in your book, I found fascinating especially the fact that by a small percentage, African-Americans are more likely to identify as Southerners than whites. That was a, that was a really interesting finding for us. And we also were able to, to, to back uh, when we took some of the data from the Southern Focus polls and tried to understand what really explains Southern identity. Uh, even, even as recently as the 1990s, being white made you statistically more likely to say you're a Southerner than not being white. And so the last time I'm going to use the word statistically more likely in this particular interview. <laughs> but when we ran uh, the, the, the statistical model uh, in, uh, based on the data that we collected in 2011, uh, race was no longer a significant predictor of Southern identity. And that really struck us as being kind of one really key difference was that it was no longer something that whites were more likely to say it, by the by this new millennium. It was it was actually something uh, that both that race didn't seem to matter. In some ways, I mean, this is one of the, the real key findings and we think most important things that we discovered. Right. So one 
Look, you might think that Southern Identity would be declining given everything that's going on in the world, given interconnections of people across media, given the fact that the landscape looks the same. Well, we don't find that. We find that it's it's actually relatively constant over time, that people have a reason and something they're getting out of regional connection. And the other, we think, really big finding is that African-Americans today are, as Gibbs said, as likely or perhaps even slightly more likely than whites to identify as a Southerner. We think that says that Southern identity is constant in that people still identify with it, but the sort of shape of it has changed over time. Clearly, the opinion of African Americans has changed since the 1990s. The percentage of whites has remained constant. It's not necessarily a decline. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just the change in perception by African American Southerners. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and and you know, roughly just you know, just so folks can understand, about 75 percent of people living in the South identify as Southerners. So again, it's not every single person. There's some people. You know, we all have folks. You know that just moved here from Ohio that may live down the street, they're, they're not quite willing to say they're a Southerner yet. We do think some folks over time may, may, may come around, and, and that's something that we, we actually have some, some forthcoming projects that we're trying to get a better sense of. What makes that person from Ohio who moves down the street from you uh, likely to maybe connect with the South in ways that, that somebody else might not? But, uh, but again, three-quarters of people uh, living in the region today is our, is our best estimate based on survey data and some other work. Just here in South Carolina, one of the things that has changed dramatically in the last 60 years is this used to be one of the states next to Utah that had the largest native-born population. They didn't, they didn't move very much. And now we've got at least three counties where a majority of the population are not only not native South Carolinians, they have moved from another region, Ori County, Beaufort County, and Aiken County, and large percentages in our urban cluster. Charleston's got a large percentage of non-natives who have moved to Charleston. That's right, and we, we sort of thought that that might be a reason, one of the reasons that Southern identity would be declining, but you know, as you can tell by the title of our book, The Resilience of Southern Identity, it's a little bit surprising, but you know, as somebody who studies the South, uh, a really interesting development that, that identity is staying strong, even though we're, we're seeing these demographic shifts and in migration into the region. And again, people are finding a reason to do this, right? So, so it, it may be different across folks. So, you know, as born in South Carolina, you know, Gibbs lived most of his life in Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina. So ours may be more of a connection to family in some ways. But we, we sort of cite this interview from the online magazine, The Bitter Southerner, uh, which is a, a really interesting publication. But they have an interview with a bartender who had just moved to the region about 10 years ago. And he said he would never think now to identify himself as anything but a Southerner. So there is a reason, right? There's something that people are getting out of this identity. In my own experience for living in in Columbia for the last 50 years, frequently those adopted Southerners have become more hardcore Southern than native sons and daughters. No, I think that's I think that's true. And I think we see that, you know, you, you talked about Charleston some. I'm talking to you from Asheville, North Carolina today. And certainly Asheville and Buncombe County uh, are, are areas that are increasingly uh, populated by folks who are not uh, not originally from this region. And it's changing the culture. It's also changing the politics, right? So these newcomers to the region are less connected to the traditional uh, party stru- political party structures even of those states. What does that do to V.O. Key's politics of friends and neighbors? It's a really interesting point, right? So VO Key is, so we've talked a lot about John Shelton Reed um, as being kind of the the, the go-to sociologist on Southern Studies, V.O. Key is the political scientist that, that people go to. And so he gave us a lot of insights in this massive book called Southern Politics and State and Nation. And one of them is this idea of friends and neighbors voting. And I do think you've seen a decline in friends and neighbors voting. Um, and I think part of it is this decline in party structure. So just to grab North Carolina as an example, we now have more registered unaffiliated voters in the state than we even do Republicans. And that every day when people are registering to vote in North Carolina, unaffiliated is the most chosen category. Nine of our counties, unaffiliated voters are more prominent than Democrats or Republicans, right? So this notion of friends and neighbors voting and the way people connect to party has changed. And we think it's changed and it's connected to this idea of in-migration and to the notion of Southern identity. The elephant in the room, gentlemen, what is it? And is it still around? The Civil War? The Civil War. 
So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, that we, we did these focus groups in particular where we asked folks, you know, how do they think about the Civil War? And we've spent so much of our time today talking about the ways African-Americans and whites come together around a collective identity. It's still very different when it comes to race relations, the Confederacy, the Civil War. They, these two, you know, large demographic groups in the South talk very differently about the Civil War. And again, you know, for, for, for much of Southern history, that was, you know, that, that, that's been looked at as sort of the, the defining moment, the lost cause. I think it's less, certainly less important than it was uh, in the 20th century, but it's still something that African-Americans and whites talk about in a different way. Right. I mean, Southern identity can unite in the ways we've talked about, and it can also divide. And I think the Civil War is a good example of where it divides. And I think many of our Southern symbols um, are good examples, right? Certainly the Confederate flag and anybody in South Carolina knows the battles that have been fought there. The battles that we're currently fighting over Confederate monuments, I think, are really good examples of that. So Gibbs and I have some, some stuff we've been doing with all sorts of scholars around the South on these Confederate monuments and kind of what opinion looks like there and how that has created a lot of divisions on Southern identity. You asked five questions about the Civil War to your your focus groups, whether the Civil War was still relevant, if the main cause of the Civil War was states' rights or slavery, whether it's okay for public officials to praise Confederate leaders, whether the respondent displays the Confederate flag, whether you're flying the flag, and whether someone feels positively when seeing the Confederate flag displayed. Now, those were questionnaires or actually verbal questions. So those were, those were from our uh, surveys. And Your so survey. those, we borrowed those questions from the Southern Focus polls that came out in the 1990s. And again, that's an area, you know, to the extent that that reflects something about Southern identity, there were... Uh, significant differences between whites and African-Americans on how they viewed or responded to those questions. When you ask about Southern identity and connection with the South, not really the differences, but th- particularly with those questions, there were some big racial differences, and race was a, a real, really important factor in, in how people answered those questions. All right. When you had your focus groups, when you got to something like the Civil War and race relations, were your focus groups integrated, or did you did you break those down by African Americans? And it's a great question. And so we mm-hmm. we had, we had a lot of discussion about the best way to handle focus groups. And so in the end, we we ended up talking to just people who said they were Southerners, and we we decided to to divide the focus groups with two focus groups with just African Americans and two focus groups with just whites. And so uh, we did that for a number of reasons, not the least of which was. We wanted folks sort of sharing uh, with each other and bouncing ideas off each other in a, in a group where they would feel perhaps the most comfortable. And so we wanted, you know, again, we're two white guys running the focus groups. And so, you know, you have to, we had, we were very, you know, we make sure people know about that. But we wanted African-Americans to be able to talk with each other in a way uh, that maybe they couldn't if it was a focus group uh, of, of whites and African-Americans. Any comments you'd like to share on both sides of these questions from those focus groups? Yeah, I mean, look, we talked about V.O. Key before, right? And and one of the insights he gave us was that politics in the South is essentially a politics of race. And I think we saw a lot of that, right? So we've talked again about some of the things that bring people together, and we saw those in the focus groups. So both uh, African-American and white focus groups, you know, we'd say, hey, when, when did you start thinking of yourself as a Southerner? Both groups would say, when I left the region. Both groups talked about, uh, you know, late night TV shows making fun of Southerners, and that made them feel more like a Southerner. Uh, both groups talked about food. So some of these touchstones really were there. When it came to the Civil War, we saw some real differences. When it came to the Confederate flag, we saw some real differences, not surprisingly. So uh, one of the more poignant stories, I thought, was uh, an African-American woman who was uh, telling us uh, she was going to, to cross the street in the city where we were doing these focus groups. And she said it was, you know, you know that moment when you're about to cross the street and you look up and the light's yellow and it's about to turn red and it turns red and you think, is that guy going to keep plowing through that light or not? Well, she said she went to step off. It turned red. She looked. She saw a flag in the front of somebody's car or truck, saw it was a Confederate flag, stepped back on the sidewalk. And I thought that was a really poignant illustration of how a symbol is perceived by different groups. We then talked to um, whites, and people had very different opinions about the flag, but we heard a lot of 
hey, it's just not that important a part of my Southern identity. Not that it's a problem, not that it changes daily behavior, but it's just sort of in the background of being a Southerner. I think Tom Petty uh, said sometime in the, in the 1990s, hey, it was, just a, it was just wallpaper for the South. And I think we saw that kind of view from whites much more so than from African Americans. So a white man, a woman who identifies themselves as a Southerner, doesn't feel necessary to fly the Confederate flag to be a Southerner. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, yeah. It certainly, that's certainly the case. But then we have African Americans who use the Confederate flag in their art. Several Charleston artists. And, and right, and I think that's where, you know, and certainly this is not a book about the flag, but it is a book about Southern identity. And I think that that illustrates how much context matters, right? That Look, we can say and we believe and we'll provide lots of evidence that Southern identity has held relatively constant. We are under no illusion that that means that everybody means the same thing when they say identify with the Southerner. We do not believe for a minute that the sort of the shape of Southern identity has not changed, even if kind of the raw frequency of it has stayed about the same. And I think your your art example is a great one, right? Context matters. And Chris, we talked a lot when we were writing this book about an a la carte Southerner, you know, sort of think of yourself at the old cafeteria where you can you can pick the jello or you can pick the fried chicken or you can pick what bread you want. And so we we think that people may be kind of defining the South and connecting to the region in their own way and they're not all the same and it's it's not as, as monolithic as it once was. And, and that's what makes it a more open term today and a more uh, inclusive term today than it was uh, at previous points in Southern history. History. Well, but you do come up with some things that everybody seemed to agree on that defy mm-hmm. hospitality, manners, and pace of life, connection to the land, which I found right. really interesting since so many folks are the urban South is, is dominant, the Southern accent, Southern food, and family connections. Mm-hmm. Now, you found that across. Yeah, and it was great. That's what's great about a focus group. So, in a survey, you know, usually you ask a person a specific question, you give them, ask them to rate something on a one to five scale, you're pretty limited in what you can do. But in a focus group, you can just say, what does being a Southerner mean to you? Then be quiet and see what people say. And so not only is that interesting, then what one of the focus group participants says may trigger something for another focus group, and they start having a conversation. And we've, of course, got tape recorders going. We're trying to uh, – we have transcripts of this. And so it really was – it really was – eye-opening to us. And, 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 and again, we tend to be more quantitative in, in, in our work, but the decision to do these focus groups and talk with Southerners was, I think, maybe one of the best decisions we made on this project. I would agree. And I would, I would say letting them talk to each other too, right? So we, we had this long conversation about whether to do lots of interviews with people. And I think it was smart to just uh, just, just let people talk to each other. And, and these things that came up, I think if you'd asked Gibbs and I before we walked in those focus groups, hey, this connection to the land, would that be important? I think we'd say, no, nah, that's not going to really matter. You let people talk, and then you just sort of draw conclusions based on what they're telling you. And I think we, we learned a lot in that it wasn't about politics. It wasn't about religion. It wasn't about these sort of big-ticket headline concepts. It was about kind of people's daily routines. You have several paragraphs about the slower pace of life. And I'd just like to know where in the South those people live. Maybe it's slower than it is in New York City. Yeah, I wondered the same thing. I sort of said, what what am I missing out here? I live in the South, and I don't feel like I have this slower pace of life either. But, you know, I think that it could be romanticized in some ways. I mean, I think that even if the, the focus group participants weren't weren't experiencing that themselves, they at least felt like it was at least a little bit different than it was by uh, a a sister-in-law from New Jersey or something like that who was rushing around all the time. And so, uh, or, you know, or or for for a student who came down south to go to college, you know, comparing that to growing up in in Manhattan, it was, was, was something that they connected with the region. Well, I would add too, I mean, it's, it might be in people's routines, but it might also be in what people value. So I think some of what these focus group participants were telling us wasn't necessarily that they were operating at a slower pace of life, but that they valued that and that you can live in the South and have that as a, as a positive value, whereas in New York, it's seen as laziness. One quick question, gentlemen. What about the impact of social media on the Southern way of life? Did you address that at all? 
you know, that really did come out in our focus groups. And it, it was part of this defending the South. Our focus group participants, again, as a reminder, they're all considered themselves to be Southerners, but they talk about a Facebook post or, 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 or something where somebody would make fun of a Southerner or somebody would send it to them, you know, as if they spoke for all Southerners. And so it was a way that people feel like some of these stereotypes about the South uh, on a national level continue to exist. And, and it was a way that people kind of rallied around to defend in their region. And so I do think that social media continues to play a role in Southern identity, particularly in the defense of Southern identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would add that it, I think there were when this advent of social media happened, right? I mean, it could either really change the way we relate to each other, or it can just amplify it. And I think in this case, it's really amplified it, right? I mean, people are still identifying as Southerners, they're just using this as a vehicle. So it's not that social media is driving a different conversation. It's just echoing it in different ways. All right. Gentlemen, I really hate this. Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. And I'm going to conclude with one of your quotations. And you're quoting Jim Cobb, our friend from the University of Georgia. Like Cobb, we have found that working to develop a theory of Southern identity leaves us somewhat, quote, bleary-eyed, brain-fogged, and not much the wiser for it all. Close quote. But nevertheless, our findings can inch us a few steps to find a larger understanding of Southern and regional identity. And I certainly think you, I wouldn't just say a small baby step, I think you've taken a giant step to doing that. And so Gibbs Notch from the College of Charleston and Chris Cooper from Western Carolina University, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. This is one of those shows where I regret we only had 50 minutes to discuss. In this really short book, just a little over 100 pages, there is so much information that challenges those of us who have studied the South and care about the South as a region. Among the interesting statistics that they came up with, population-wise, the South is larger than the Midwest and the Northeast combined. So the South does matter, whether you're talking about national politics, you're talking about the economy, but those of us who live here and how we look at ourselves is really the subject of this book. It chronicles the region as a whole, but at the same time recognizes that there are, in truth, many, many Souths. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.